Hey everybody, thank you for clicking play on part two of our Kennedy episode with special guest Richard Katzke. Last week we had a great discussion with Richard talking about the facts of the case involving our praying football coach, and we tried to set the stage for today's episode, which is part two, and we go into all of the detail about how this really fascinating case played out at the Supreme Court a few years ago. So thank you for coming back and checking out part two of our special episode with Richard Kasky. So uh, without further ado, enjoy. It's for educational purposes only. While Chris and Jamie always try to provide accurate information, the law is like what I'm willing to eat. It's always changing. This podcast is not legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship, but they promised me it would be a lot of fun for you. Can I get my candy now? So where we left off at the end of our last episode, we were talking a little bit about how Kennedy did not get fired. Kennedy was on a year-to-year contract, and at the end of his contract term, he elected not to reapply for the following year. So he wasn't fired. He just chose not to reapply for the job as all of the coaches do at the end of each year they reapply and the district would renew the contract. So that's where we left off. Let's pick it up with Chris. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, after all of that, so that explains some interesting language in the court's opinion, because they never say like Kennedy was fired or anything. It's usually phrased in the passive voice. So like Kennedy left his job. So that's interesting that they don't even address the like causal connection or the ask the question, like, was there actually retaliation or something like that? Right. Um, But anyway, that's neither here nor there because that doesn't make it to the opinion. Um, so Kennedy brings a lawsuit in federal court arguing that his First Amendment rights to free speech and free exercise had been violated when he was non-renewed and, well, actually, no, he wasn't non-renewed, were violated when the school district essentially retaliated against him and forbade him from engaging in religious expression of his sincerely held religious beliefs. So he brings this lawsuit in federal court, making these two claims. He moves for a preliminary injunction. Court denies it. Kennedy appeals that to the Ninth Circuit. Ninth Circuit agrees with the district court, denies the preliminary injunction, kicks it back down to the trial court after the Supreme Court denies cert. So we've actually already got one trip through the court system, right, on the preliminary injunction issue, um, which is a topic that we've talked about a couple times. But, you know, that's just one of those things to kind of maintain the status quo. And one of the things you have to prove to get a preliminary injunction is a substantial likelihood of success on the merits. The lower court doesn't see Kennedy having a substantial likelihood of success and so denies the preliminary injunction. Uh, As we talked about, it goes through the discovery. We get these kind of cross motions for summary judgment at that point. And then the trial court grants summary judgment in favor of the school district. Uh, So school district wins, finds that there's no constitutional violation here, according to the Supreme Court's interpretation of the trial court's opinion. And that is going to become important, I think, as we talk about how this court, this case comes out. The trial court concludes that the sole reason Kennedy was fired was the school's concern for violating the establishment clause if it allowed the behavior to continue. And so the lower court looks at this and says, you know, Kennedy, he's a football coach. He was hired to be a role model, to be kind of a, um, you know, somebody these kids can look up to. His speech when he was engaging in these prayers wasn't private speech. It was on the 50-yard line. It was on the field of play. It's during a school event. All of that means that it bears the imprimatur of the school. It's not his personal speech. And then they say essentially that, yeah, allowing this speech would have invited an establishment clause violation. So the school, you know, even if this was private speech, um, the school had a compelling reason to prevent and punish the speech because it had to make sure that it was being safe on the establishment clause grounds. And so that's the lower court and the Ninth Circuit affirms and agrees with that. 
And that is when, on the second trip up, the Supreme Court decides to take up the case. Yeah, that, That's all correct, although there's a funny a extra step in there uh, that's probably worth a mention, which is after the appeal from the denial of the preliminary injunction, you're right that the Supreme Court denied review at that point. Mm -hmm. Justice Alito wrote an opinion, a statement on denial of cert with three other justices joining him that said something like this. Yeah, I agree that it's too early for us to decide this case. But perhaps Kennedy was having his prayer at the same time that other faculty could be making a dinner reservation, calling home, uh, going to the bathroom, and if so, then disallowing prayer but allowing any other sort of personal conduct might be a free exercise violation, or it might be that it's a free speech violation. And the court mm -hmm. basically set up, Justice Alito set up, here's what we would like to see this case look like. Um, maybe, oh, maybe he was doing it on his personal time, not when he was actually supposed to be coaching. And so that would change the calculus as well, or could. Mm -hmm. So when it went back to the trial court, Kennedy's lawyers tried very hard to show that there was all sorts of personal conduct going on, and the only thing that was disallowed was prayer, and that, you know, it was this sort of bias uh, against him. So did they change the argument, or did they just really, like, start emphasizing the things that they thought the court wanted to hear? Like, was that an original part of their original argument? A little of both. Mm. Um, they certainly picked up on the particular examples that Justice Alito laid out. And they would ask these questions. Oh, could you have made a call home? Could you have made a dinner reservation to the other coaches? Mm. And the answer was actually no. And Kennedy's own testimony was, I was on duty at the time. I was supposed to be responsible for the kids. There's no question about that. Mm -hmm. So what Justice Alito had set up as this was private time, Kennedy said no wasn't. And then you had all the other coaches testifying. Nobody was checking scores or news or email or making dinner reservations. That's not what you do at this moment uh, through the game in general, but especially not at this moment at the end of the game that is kind of the, one of the key ceremonies of right. high school football. Yeah, And so with Kennedy's own testimony against it, his lawyers kept pushing that same narrative. And the Ninth Circuit, the Court of Appeals, said that it was a false narrative constructed by the lawyers. But the Supreme Court picked that up. And if you look at the first words from Justice Gorsuch's opinion for the court, he tells that story mm -hmm. that Kennedy, in fact, testified wasn't true. Jeez. Wow. I don't know what to do with that. Yeah. Well, I, I had a law professor who would always joke, you're entitled to your opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts. And this seems to be one of those big problems. And like, you know, that's something that we really rely on courts is one of the ways we, I guess, evaluate courts is not necessarily on whether or not we agree with their outcomes. It's about whether or not they come to those outcomes in defensible and consistent ways. And kind of that like, we got to be able to trust what they're telling us is true. And that seems to be right. a huge problem if we can't trust that they are going to take these cases as they come to them without kind of like bending or twisting them to get to the outcomes they might desire. And so like that just kind of goes to this question of institutional respect. Right. Popular trust in the court is at an all time low and dramatically so. Mm. Look, it's always been the case that whoever you are, whatever issues you care about, whatever side of those issues you're on, sometimes the Supreme Court, if it gets those cases and those issues, will rule in a way that you like the bottom line, and sometimes you don't. But the respect for the institution was everybody gets a fair hearing. We take the cases as they come. We do the best job that we can to decide them, and people accept the judgment of the court, whether they like it or not, because, mm -hmm. because we believe that the system is basically fair and gives people a fair hearing. One of the things that I think accounts for the incredibly, shockingly, devilishly low respect for the Supreme Court today as an institution is not about the bottom line decisions, but about the fact that the rule of law seems to go out the window when the court decides a question that it wants to decide for 
seemingly political reasons. Yeah. That's really worrisome if you care about political institutions. And it should be worrisome kind of no matter what your perspective is on any particular case. Right. Hmm. Especially because, you know, the Supreme Court only has nine people on it and you only need five of them to make one of these decisions. So that's a lot of institutional power consolidated in a very few number of people. And if they're not bound by kind of the institutional restraints of that institution, things like stare decisis, um, you know, the legal doctrine that you should stand by prior decisions, that opens up a whole can of worms. And we've talked about a little bit when we were talking about Chevron, like if you can't rely on established law and if everything's up for a fight all the time then being a political actor in this environment becomes really tricky because you don't know which way the wind's going to blow we are told to believe and i think we as a society used to very much believe that there were limits to what the court would decide stare decisis is one of those limits being limited to the case that comes before the court and the particular facts is another one that we don't preference one set of fundamental rights over another, but instead we try to resolve things in a way that respects both. That was another really important limit on the courts sort of being free-floating lawmakers. Mm -hmm. All those things are no longer true. In this case, it shows instead of trying to say, how do we reconcile the rights protected by the Establishment Clause and the rights protected by the Free Exercise Clause, the court has said, and in a few cases now in, in recent terms, that the Free Exercise Clause takes precedence. Mm -hmm. Rather, what the court, technically what the court has said is the Free Exercise Clause has been a disfavored right, and so we're going to restore it to parity with other rights. But what the court has been doing is saying that uh, free exercise gets special privileges, and particularly, by the way, people of majority faith getting special privileges over everyone else and all the other rights, the Establishment Clause, the Equal Protection Clause, and a whole bunch of other stuff fall by the wayside when a claim is made in the language of free exercise. Yeah. So let's look at how the court navigated those issues in this case, right? So we've got these kind of two claims. We've got this free exercise clause claim and a free speech claim. And the court, um, so we mentioned that Justice Gorsuch writes the majority opinion. And Richard, I don't know if I know the answer to this, but did the composition of the court change between the first denial of cert when Alito kind of gives this cheat sheet to when the court ultimately hears the decision? Justice Barrett joined the court. Justice Ginsburg left. At least I think so. I would actually have to look back uh, to the... Oh, yeah, because the original was in 2019. I think that it was that, uh, but I'm not, I'm actually not positive. I should know this. Um, <laughs> no, no worries. I just like, if we're talking about the court as a political institution, the change in personnel, you know, always kind of yeah. can help us understand perhaps why the court does the things that it does. Yeah. The question would be from 2019 to 2022. And I just, uh, it's January, 2019. Oh, and Justice Barrett's appointment was in in 2020, right. was October of 2020. Right. So that was the difference. Okay. Yes. Yeah. During COVID and right before the presidential election. Yep. Yeah. Um, okay. So we've got this, this majority opinion. Six justices join this opinion by Gorsuch. And it starts with the proposition that religious speech is doubly protected by the First Amendment because it is protected both under the Free Exercise Clause as well as the Free Speech Clause. And so the court kind of with starting with that understanding or that framework starts to then explore these specific claims. And as with a lot of the cases that we talk about when we're talking about the Constitution, one of the things that really matters most is what level of scrutiny the court is going to apply when they look at these laws. And so that's part of one of the big kind of conflicts here is basically, how do we look at these laws? Do we elevate scrutiny or kind of which bucket do these laws fit into? And so for the free exercise clause, kind of starting there, the court says, um, Justice Gorsuch writing for the majority says that one way to establish a free exercise clause violation is to show that the government has burdened your religious practice pursuant to some policy that is not neutral or generally applicable. So essentially, is there a policy that either targets religion or singles religion out for special negative treatment? Are you treating religion differently than you're treating other stuff? And, you know, here... After kind of setting up that standard, they find that Kennedy has established this prima facie free exercise violation. First, the court says that he's engaged in religious practice. Obviously, he's engaging in prayer and that the district's actions were discouraging that practice based on its desire to kind of prevent or to 
halt his religious practices. So here we've got something that is burdening his practices, and that policy is not neutral or generally applicable. So um, a couple of things that I think are interesting, especially in that. One of them is that so look, as a formal matter, Justice Thomas and Justice Alito, they filed concurrences saying that we aren't specifying, and Justice Thomas did this most explicitly, we aren't specifying what the legal standard is going to be for free exercise and whether it's more than we used to think because under any standard, the coach wins, the school district loses here. But that language from Justice Gorsuch's opinion that prayer is doubly protected because it under the free speech clause and the free exercise clause is a concept that interestingly, even conservative legal scholars going back decades thought was crazy. Uh, <laughs> you couldn't make sense of it. So after the Supreme Court decided a case called Employment Division against Smith, it wasn't a school case. It was a case um, involving some guys in Oregon who were fired from their jobs and uh, sought to get unemployment benefits from the state. The state denied the unemployment benefits because uh, they were terminated for drug use, but the drug use was using peyote in a, in a religious sacrament of the Native American church. Hmm. The Supreme Court there, in an opinion by Justice Scalia, staked out this opinion that, or this rather legal principle, that free exercise rights are not violated if a law that is neutral and generally applicable, it doesn't especially disfavor religion, it applies to everybody the same way. If it just happens to put an extra burden on you because of your religion, that's maybe an unfortunate thing, but it's what we need to have a rule of law. You can't say that murder is illegal except if you want to do human sacrifices. And you can't say that speeding is illegal except if you're on the way to church and, and don't want to be late. Um, she said we couldn't have a rule of law if that was the case. Mm. There's a funny little thing in that opinion that Justice Scalia used to try to explain away some really important past decisions on free exercise law by saying that when hybrid rights are at issue, when you have two different rights um, instead of one that are implicated, that those cases just make things different. We're not really sure what that does. Conservative legal scholars like Michael McConnell at Stanford, who was on the um, U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit for a long time as well, said at the time, that makes no sense. How can you take a weak free speech claim and a weak free exercise claim and add them together and get something that gets strict scrutiny, mm -hmm. something that gets the highest level of judicial protection. Uh. Um, now, Justice Gorsuch put in that line, which was served up by the lawyers for Joe Kennedy, and we're left to figure out what it means, and we're left to figure out what it means in light of Justice Thomas's saying that we're not going to tell you whether the standard is higher when you for free exercise than free speech or how that law works. But it is a funny concept that whatever one may think about, about the decision in the peyote case, there's something that kind of we all used to agree, adding together two claims about the same conduct and saying it gets special protection doesn't make sense because you can always do that. Right. Anything that's about religion, you can always turn around and describe as, as speech about speech as well. And a lot of stuff about equality under the Equal Protection Clause, you can turn around and describe as about religion as well. If being able to describe things in two different ways means that they get treated differently when the conduct is still the same. Right. That's a that's a weird thing to have to figure out. Yeah, and typically my understanding has been that if there's two constitutional provisions that could apply, you basically apply the one that's more specific. So like, you know, if it's a if it could have been a 4th amendment seizure or it could have been a substantive due process claim, you apply the 4th amendment seizure because it's more specific of a provision. So that that's really interesting. And that also like kind of raises a separate issue which is the court goes on in the Kennedy opinion to talk about like when we know a law is not generally applicable and it says we know a law is generally applicable if it prohibits religious conduct while permitting secular conduct that undermines the government's asserted interests in a similar way, or if there's a mechanism for individualized exemptions. And so this idea that we can somehow kind of put the free exercise clause and the religious and the free speech clause together to create this like stronger claim seems to contradict 
this provision, which says, you know, what we're really worried about here is whether or not religious speech and secular speech are on equal footing. I think that's right. And it gets to something that the court started to do before this case, before the Kennedy case and has continued since then, but over the past, call it four or five years, in elevating free exercise at the expense of the Establishment Clause and I think also the Equal Protection Mm -hmm. Clause. One of the things that we have over the past few years is some cases about COVID restrictions that got to the Supreme Court. And while Justice Ginsburg was still on the court when there was a conservative majority, but in COVID cases, the chief justice sided with the Democratic appointees in thinking that if the government, for reasons of protecting health, makes restrictions on gathering together, and it does things in a way that recognizes how serious is the threat of contagion in this setting versus that setting. And if they're similar, they should be treated in similar ways. And if they're different, they should be treated in different ways. And as the chief justice put it, for a state to restrict going to a religious service with sitting for an hour or in our synagogue's case, three hours all together and singing together, if that if the that's like a concert or a public lecture. And if the court treats those things the same way, that's fine. And if and grocery stores are different. And so if the states treat grocery stores different, where you go in, you grab your things and you leave, that it's treating similar things similarly and different things differently, and that's fine. After Justice Ginsburg died and Justice Barrett was put onto the court. The court changed that jurisprudence uh, and it did it on the shadow docket, cases that weren't argued or fully brief. Mm-hmm. And it, what it did, the court did then was it said, essentially, we're going to treat re- religion must get the best treatment that anything gets. And if it doesn't, then that is religious discrimination. So if the state allows more than 10 people to shop in a grocery store at a time, then disallowing people to get together in a private gathering in a home of 20 or 30 or 50 people uh, or even 10, the court can put different restrictions on the grocery store than on that or than the religious service because they're different contexts. Uh, the court changed that now and says, no, no, no. If you allow 50 people to be in a grocery store and you say that having people over to your house for a religious service or to your to your church or synagogue for a religious service of more than 10 is not allowed, you've discriminated against religion. That folds over into what we have here in, say, in trying to figure out when we have very traditional rules, long-standing rules going back to the 1960s and 70s about uh, about how to figure out the restrictions that a public school can place on its teachers and administrators and how and when they can't. But now we have a new jurisprudence that says if the right asserted is about religion, then we have to see the very best treatment that anything, anything else gets. And if more is given to anything else than religion under any circumstance, then religion is being disfavored. Instead of saying, let's compare similar things to each other and see whether things that are really the secular equivalent of a religious activity like a worship service are treated the same way. Hmm. That's a mess, too, with a special privileging of religious rights that sacrifices not just other rights, but also the rights of religious minorities to the rights of the majority. And if you care about religious freedom, that's a scary thing, too. Wow. I think that just kind of shows, like, the Supreme Court's religious jurisprudence has just shaken up so much in the last five years or so, where we're all kind of just playing catch up here. And if you talk to the conservative justices, they might characterize it as trying to kind of correct an imbalance where religion hasn't been getting kind of the similar protection as the these protections as these other rights. And so we need to kind of at least put religion on kind of equal footing with these. But then the flip side of that is, you know, what interests are you subordinating then at that same time? So, like, it, it's really interesting to hear kind of how the court 
you know, the court in this opinion is kind of just laying these down, like as if these are non-controversial understandings of these constitutional provisions. And, you know, as we just talked about, that's obviously not the case. Um, right. And that's another thing that kind of surprised me about this opinion uh, that Richard, I'd love to hear your thoughts on uh, before we dig into the free speech claim is this opinion has almost no dialogue with the dissent. And I find that really odd because typically when there's these big blockbuster divided cases that have like significant jurisdictional yeah. uh, ramifications, you'll have some dialogue like, hey, here's why I'm right and they're wrong. And here, like I counted and there's only three references to the dissent, one of which is in the main body. And it basically says like the dissent wants to have this perspective and the dissent says, no, we don't. And then there's two references in footnotes and that's it. And so like, to me, like that is just so fascinating because it doesn't acknowledge the majority doesn't seem to acknowledge that like, we're actually doing something really significant here. And it isn't established that what we're doing is so clear that it doesn't need to be justified. I, look, that's exactly right. The court is rewriting both free exercise and establishment clause jurisprudence and saying that it's not. And one of the ways that the court does that is to say that thing that you thought the law that we said back in the early 1970s, we didn't really, we never really meant that. That hasn't been true for a long time. That just isn't true. The court has plenty of opinions, including the one other that it dealt with on uh, on prayer at high school football games, public uh, public schools in 2000, it pointed to all the considerations that had been the law for a long time that the court says now, we never really thought or meant that. Right. The court also did something else, which is that it substituted uh, what it calls a test of look to history and tradition to, to tell what violates the establishment clause. And that too, not only is that a complete rewrite of the law, but it leaves a real quandary in this way. When you're looking at something, when you're looking at a particular case, like a case of a public school coach having prayer at high school football games, um, and you ask the question, what does history and tradition tell us about how the First Amendment was understood and interpreted? At the time of the founding, there wasn't football which is a shame sure but it was it was you know it wasn't played until a game in the 1880s and there weren't public schools right public education uh, arose later and the first amendment wasn't treated as applying to the states until actually the 1930s but based on the 14th amendment so post-civil war uh and the federal government did so little, it wasn't having events of any kind to know whether prayers would be there or not. So what does history and tradition tell us? Apparently, we're supposed to draw from that that all of this would have been just fine, but I have real trouble understanding history that way. Right. Yeah. And so we're talking about the lemon test, right? So yeah. like the lemon test comes from lemon versus Kurtzman. And this is kind of historically the test that we've used to determine whether or not there's an establishment cause violation. And so the lemon test, you know, would look at um, three things, right? Yeah. So the purpose of the law, the effect of the law, and whether or not there was this like entanglement between religion and government. Yeah. And, you know, it was, it was a very complicated test. There's a lot of things to consider, but it's also a really complicated issue, right? Like there's a lot going on here that we have to think about. And so we had this lemon test. We thought that was pretty established. And then Richard, to your point, like the court just kind of says like, you know, we haven't really been following that for a while. So here's what we need to do instead, this history and tradition thing. And I'll say this, like I'm a scholar. I do research. Part of my research is history of education and the history of American education is very, very intertwined with religious instruction. Yeah. Um, so like public schools specifically taught religion as truth for most of like the 19th century. Um, and so like this history and tradition test gets really complicated when we had public schools that were teaching Protestantism. Yeah, look, that's right. One of the things that from the birth of the public schools, the big dissenters to the initial curricula in the 1820s were the Baptists because uh, they were worried that the religion that was being taught in these brand new public schools wasn't their religion. 
uh, and it was Christianity, but it was somebody else's Christianity. And then through later in the 19th century, the rise of Catholic schools came about because, you know, the, the upshot of, of the Baptist dissent and pushing for inclusion in the public schools was things like unadorned reading of the Protestant Bible. And from the Catholic Church's perspective or the diocese perspective, that was somebody else's Bible. It was the it was the Protestant Bible, not the Catholic Bible. We had Bible riots uh, on the streets in major American cities like Boston that were about whose Bible would be used. So you're right. The history of American education is one of wrestling with religion in schools. You know, I look at it as the through line is becoming more inclusive and recognizing that to do that and to be respectful for everybody, you have to more and more keep public schools secular and uh, and have families in their houses of worship make the religious choices for their students. Mm -hmm. But the court doesn't really give us a useful way to think about this phrase, history and tradition. Right. It did the same thing on the Second Amendment, by the way. That's now the law for determining which gun laws are permitted or could be uh, or impermissible under the Second Amendment, uh, is look to history and tradition, again, with history being this kind of complicated mess. Yeah, right. And that's what Justice Kagan's kind of common refrain is, like, we're jurists. We are not amateur historians. But so, like, in the Kennedy case, the court, you know, doesn't give us kind of what the outlines of that history and tradition test really mean. But the kind of the bottom line that they give us is that the Establishment Clause does not require government to purge religious expression from its institutions or from its practices or be liable for an Establishment Clause violation. So kind of like, essentially, that's kind of the bottom line is you don't have to like completely get rid of it in order to abide by the Establishment Clause. And I think that's kind of like the brightest line the court gives us here. And if the issue were one of students' religious exercise in the schools, then that would clearly be true and has been the law for a long time. Right. The the question is what to do about public officials, because yeah. that's we all know that's what public school teachers and coaches and administrators are. What about when they are performing their jobs right. and want to do them with their inclusion of their faith? This is a different instance of the same thing we had with Kim Davis, the the clerk oh, yeah. who denied marriage licenses to same-sex couples and said that because of my religion, I won't do it, even though the law is that they have to be, that same-sex couples have to be able to get marriage licenses the same way as as opposite-sex couples. And she said, my religion trumps. The courts all at the time, but it never went to the Supreme Court, all at the time were of the view that you get to have, of course, your own private personal religious beliefs and you get to act on those in your personal life. But when you're doing a government job for the public, you're supposed to do it in the way that treats everyone equally. And that wasn't doing it for Kim Davis. The school district here thought that wasn't what was go- what was going on with Joe Kennedy. And that's the question that we have to figure out going forward for right. how much can public employees now smuggle in and say, I'm just doing my own thing when it's in the performance of their job. But I think that kind of mirrors or parallels the point that you made earlier about how the school district was essentially trying to work with Kennedy to try to come to some sort of mutual understanding, mutually beneficial sort of resolution, which, you know, we mentioned this in one of the other cases, Chris, that we did about the pronoun policy, right? How the school district Mm -hmm. really tried to walk that fine line between not violating somebody's free exercise rights, but also trying to protect the rights of others and trying not to run afoul of the Establishment Clause in that the school district essentially made accommodations for students' religious beliefs and said, if you do not want to use somebody's pronouns, that's fine, Mm -hmm. but you can't intentionally misgender them. To me, it kind of parallels that comment that you were making earlier, Richard, about the school district was trying to work with Kennedy to try to find some sort of mutually agreeable solution, Mm -hmm. right? And 
<laughs> I don't know this, uh, as I've been listening to this, you know, really interesting discussion, I'm thinking to myself, man, like how nice would it have been if that had been the outcome and not this really confusing <laughs> Supreme Court opinion? <laughs> uh, there would have been a different case. I know, I know. It's gonna gonna get there somehow. <laughs> right. Sorry. I mean, look, ultimately that wasn't where the court wanted to go and right. it apparently gets to pick and choose and reconstruct things yeah. to say what it wants. But it's right that Look, I have over the years in my work on the relationship between religion and government, I've represented a lot of school districts and, and advised a lot of colleges and universities, and I've also sued a lot of both. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I have found in thinking about the cases that have gone before judges is that they have generally found the test that the Supreme Court wiped out in Kennedy, though not saying that it did, to be really helpful. The judges, depending on their own perspectives, may or may not like the outcome, but it, they thought it was sufficiently clear. They thought the test points, uh, the test helps them resolve the question. Right. Mm -hmm. And in the same way, school officials could understand the law that points them in the direction of how to conform their conduct and to do it in a way that respects the beliefs of everyone, respects the beliefs of their faculty and the students and their families. I think this puts a big thumb on the scale or appears to put a big thumb on the scale in favor of government employees over the public they're supposed to serve. Mm -hmm. And that as a preference really doesn't seem like a win for religious liberty, religious freedom to me. It seems like a win for the ability to impose your faith if you're of the majority and have power and in control over everybody else never mind their religious beliefs and practices. Right. Yeah. And that's something like in law, we often talk about this idea of doctrinal signaling, like, hey, this is the direction we think we're going to go or, and that's kind of what concurrences do a lot of the time. They're like, hey, we didn't answer this question. Keep an eye out. Um, but like in this case, I think that doctrinal signaling is really the most important issue here other than like, you know, kind of reframing this doctrine because the bottom line conclusion from this case is if an individual employee is engaged in private personal prayer during a moment in which they're not engaged in other activities, they can do that without basically you, you school should let them do that because it's protected speech and it doesn't violate the constitution. And who didn't think that was true? Right. That's what I was going to say. Like, that's always been the rule, right? Like, yeah, yeah. This case, like, didn't need to be a case because honestly, like, if we take the facts as the court gave them to us, like, hey, you punished Kennedy because he was praying quietly and personally on his own time, but that's not really what happened. And there's also these doctrinal things that go along with it. So it's really, this case is so fascinating because it doesn't, I don't think it did anything practically, but doctrinally, it's going to have this massive, massive impact. Yeah. I think that's right. Taking it on its own terms, what did it do? It came to a holding that nobody thought would be untrue given the story that the court told, but in the process, it was the convenient vehicle set aside the making up a different story to get there, but it was a convenient vehicle to now say that doctrinally all bets are off. Wow. Right, right. So the fallout is going to be fun to, uh, yeah. to parse uh, as we continue to do that. But, you know, the court, like we, we've talked about how they've kind of pivoted from some prior jurisprudence with like the lemon test and things like that. But the court also, I think, affirms a couple of really important principles within this free exercise and establishment clause relationship. Richard, you mentioned a case a while ago about like it was the prayer at a school football game. It was student initiated. And the court struck that down and said like, hey, you can't do that because if you do that, that's an establishment clause violation. And the court here cites that case approvingly, it seems, to basically say like this concern about coercion is really important in public schools because we've got this captive audience who is young and impressionable. And so we have to be really careful about coercing religious beliefs or practices for this population. And here the court. But that wasn't happening here, right? Right. And the court kind of says, like, you know, we don't know what the line is for what constitutes like exposure versus coercion. But we know here there's no evidence, or at least there wasn't, according to the court, enough to kind of make the case for coercion. 
you know, I know that you obviously argued against that conclusion, right? But I think it's important to recognize that they do affirm at least the holdings of those prior coercion cases. And that raises a question going forward. What counts as coercion? Mm-hmm, right. um, the, the case you were talking about, it's called Santa Fe Independent School District against Doe. It was from 2000. And it was brought by a Catholic family and a Mormon family who were challenging a school district's practice of they would have somebody, a student who was appointed to deliver a prayer over the loudspeaker at every football game. And then in the course of the litigation, the school district changed its policy a little bit and said, now we're going to have a vote. Uh, And the vote will be, should we have a prayer or something else? Or should we have students speaking or not? And then still turned over its microphone to a student as the prayer giver. Uh, The family said, here we are. We want to have our kids be able to participate in that all-important thing. This is Texas. That case came out of uh, Santa Fe, Texas, not New Mexico. Football, high school football is a big deal everywhere, but boy, in Texas, is it. You can't be part of the school community if you can't go because you feel like if you do, you have to participate in this collective prayer. Stand and say the prayer together, and if not, everybody is going to see you and know. Mm-hmm. And you're going to be the outcast. Right. Uh, so the court at that time said that's coercion of these students, even though it was what the court specifically labeled student led, student initiated prayer over the loudspeaker. Here we have a coach who's been doing this for seven years. Um, He was the one who started it. He stands up there and delivers what he called motivational prayers, these sort of speech speech prayers, uh, and invited the other team and everything else. And those students, those kids, some as young as 14 years old, knew what they were supposed to do to go along, to get along. Mm -hmm. And the court here by treating this as purely private conduct, did not address the coercion, which means we now don't exactly know what counts as coercion anymore. Right. I would just say on that note, I would encourage our listeners to go to Google and type in Kennedy versus Bremerton and click on the little images button and look for the picture of that private personal prayer. Which are in the dissenting opinion, which I find just absolutely fascinating that the dissent put pictures in the body like they're not footnotes they're not appendixes they're in the text which is i i don't i've never seen that i don't know if you have like that was weird you know it is a thing that i don't know that i've ever seen the court occasionally will reproduce in rare circumstances a document but actually but and it's an appendix but actually popping photos right in line in the Mm -hmm. text which justice sotomayor did to say see right (laughs) basically a picture is worth a thousand words right look at what actually happened and go and think about what it means to have called that personal private prayer right right which gets at the framing right because i think the so the majority essentially creates this story where Kennedy was punished for these three instances of personal quiet prayer where no students joined him and they were immediately after the game when he was free to engage in these other responsibilities. And so that's the only justification that the court evaluates. And so like, you know, to me, like being Richard, I think you you mentioned you were also in the marching band. Like one is like this issue of on the field versus off the field. Like the field is a stage and maybe that's my marching band coming out, but like you don't get on that football field unless you've got a reason to be there. And when you're on that football field, you are doing your job. Like you don't go on the football field for fun. You're not on the football field when it's for your own personal time, right? That's right. You know, and when you're a coach and it's at that moment after the team handshakes, when you go to what is a traditional time for a speech, right? You talk to the, you talk to the students. um, I'm proud of you for the game we played and whatever. And then that's a prayer. Can anybody seriously think that that's private? But you're right. Right. It's also the case that a thousand people jumping the fence and going onto the field to surround is a huge problem, not just for the safety, although it was definitely that. It was band members and cheerleaders were knocked over in the process, but also that it is, that's the stage, that's the school event that's supposed to be for the students, not to be a showcase for the teacher's uh, public exercise of his faith, not to be something that becomes a religious service. That's the event about and for 
the students. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because I, I keep comparing this to like, you know, if this were an orchestra concert and on his way off the podium, the orchestra conductor takes a knee and does a quick Tim Tebow, like, is that going to be the same thing? Because it's like, to me, that's exactly the same thing because that football field is, it's not open to the public very clearly. It is where you you know, if you're not engaged in duties or responsibilities related to the school or the, the game of football, you're not doing anything there. And teachers in the classroom. Right. Right. In the middle of the history lecture, does it become your personal time uh, because you say so? Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think it just it goes back to that that point that you just made. Like, I'm just trying to think back to my experience as a teacher and as an administrator, you know, and I did a lot of stuff with our school plays and things like that. The number of times that I went and gave kids pep talks or I gave, you know, whatever. I never, ever would have thought this is not part of my job responsibility. Like right. I mean, maybe it wasn't a part of my job responsibilities officially, but I don't know how any educator could think that going to their students to give a motivational, you know, a pep talk or whatever, you're a role model to say that that is private. I don't know. I don't think the court's saying that's private, like, right, because we have to look at how the court defined what it says happened. And what it says happened was this quiet, personal moment of reflection and personal prayer. If you take the court at its word about what was supposedly going on, um, then I suppose the parallel would be you're alone in your office as the English teacher who's not teaching right now and you're, you know, you're separated off or mm -hmm. you're having your lunch in the faculty lounge and you bow your head to say, to say a prayer before you say grace before your meal, something like that. Yeah, I can't see that. <laughs> right. I mean, look, you both have been educators and you know that as teachers, you understand that when you are with students and when you are working with students and when you're supervising them uh, and when you're teaching them, you're on a stage. Yeah. The court treated this as something else, even though a bigger stage is hard to imagine in an American high school than the center of the football field on Friday night. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I like. You know, when I was practicing, like when this decision came out, I just kind of told my clients, like, it doesn't change anything. Just keep doing what you're doing, because on its terms, it doesn't change anything. And then, like, they would ask, like, but can I still punish somebody who, like, proselytizes kids or prays in front of kids? And I was like, you know, it kind of depends now. But, like, it always depended on were they doing it? Was it personal? Was it private? Was it just, like, them expressing themselves? Or were they trying to coerce or share this with children to get them to do something or believe something? And, like, yeah. I don't know that this decision really changed that calculus, but it does kind of change the direction we're going. It largely changed the formula that had been used sure. previously to determine, to answer those questions, right? Mm -hmm. So the only thing we can do is wait to see, right. you know, the next one that comes down the pike, what are they going to do? Mm -hmm. Right. The best legal, I think the best legal understanding of the case has to be to take the court at its word that this is what was going on and, the, and this is the conclusion that follows. Um, but one thing that I can tell you is that uh, in, in my old position, uh, we got contacts from families and contacts from principals and superintendents after the Kennedy decision, all trying to figure out what to do in the same way that, Chris, you got questions. And the questions were something like this from the parents were the school board is now saying that it and the teachers can do anything they want with respect to religion. They can have prayers and church services with our students and uh, and that that's now okay. And what the principals and superintendents who talked to me were saying is we now have teachers who say they can do anything and, and there's nothing that we can do to prevent it. I think that both of those perspectives, or they're really the same perspective, but but different only in where you sit, are still wrong, but it is not a surprise that people are confused. Right. Yeah, because it's the doctrinal signaling and then also just the the massive disruption that we have when precedent gets overturned is it yeah. raises more questions than it answers, um, which is one of the things we look at when, or courts are supposed to look at when they're thinking about deviating from stare decisis is basically like, how much reliance have people put on this and how has it ordered their conduct? And here, 
we've put a lot of reliance on lemon and kind of how this historical interplay between establishment and free exercise happened. And now a lot of that is gone. And so we're kind of having to retread water that we thought was already pretty well charted. Yeah, you know, one thing in that, um, the case I think I did first when I went to Americans United back in 2004 became Kitzmiller against Dover Area School District, which some of your listeners will know. It's the intelligent design creationism case out of Pennsylvania. Hmm. The judge who was an appointee of George W. Bush and who was expected by very aggressively by people on the other side of the issue. I was representing parents challenging the inclusion of intelligent design creationism in a public school science curriculum. The folks who were supportive of the school district doing it, there was a real narrative on the kind of an explosion on the web and in the media of people saying, I remember one particular quote was something like, the judge is one of George W.'s good old boys and he'll take care of us, that this is a political issue where a conservative Republican judge will decide that the school district gets to teach creationism. The judge decided absolutely the opposite under the law, applying the lemon test and applying all the law up to that point. Uh, he wrote a 139-page opinion explaining <laughs> all of that. After the Kennedy decision, the judge, he's hes now retired from the bench. He's the president of uh, Dickinson College. He wrote a, a, a little article, a little think piece saying to all those people who said that the lemon test was hard to understand, didn't make sense, whatever he said. I had to apply it, and I thought it was really helpful uh, and useful in getting to the questions one should ask to make sense of what the First Amendment requires about religion in the public schools. Um, what he didn't say, but what I think is was implicit in his remarks was, how the heck could I decide that case today um, with history and tradition mm -hmm. rather than a legal test built up with cases going back to the 1940s at least and or really the 1930s and decide what to make of this inclusion of a particular religious view in uh, public school science curriculum. I don't know how to do that. Right. I think that that was probably what he was feeling. He wrote, he stopped just short of saying that and saying, I found it really helpful in people who say that it wasn't our misunderstanding the law and the original meaning and purpose of the First Amendment and everything else. Which is the wonderful irony of jettisoning lemon is yep. the critique was it was too hard. It was too amorphous. It was too ambiguous. And we replaced it with something that is perhaps more so. And honest, I think honest judges who criticized it, and there were a lot of criticisms and opinions from justices and judges, often it was written as, oh, it's just so difficult. But what the more honest things were, were a whole spate of opinions by folks saying, here's the test. It's easy to apply. In a page and a half, I can tell you the facts of the case and the outcome, and then I'll spend 29 more pages telling you why I don't think that should be the case because I don't like that result. Yeah. The rule of law isn't supposed to work. Mm -hmm. I don't like it, so that can't be the law. Right. It's, it's sometimes as a judge, maybe even a lot of times, most of the time is the law is X, and it doesn't matter whether I like that or not. That's that's the rule, and it's the rule that people know they're supposed to live by. Right. Yeah. And so to kind of wrap up with some kind of big takeaways, Richard, I want to ask you some practical questions for the school. And I want you to see if, based on the Kennedy versus Bremerton decision, you think what I'm going to propose would make the grade, right? So could the school pass a board policy that essentially says, unless you are engaged in government operations or government business, you will not be doing anything on the football field. Would that pass the muster? Yes, that's absolutely permitted. If you're not one of the coaches or the or the players or the band members or the cheerleaders, you can't be on there. Absolutely. And can you limit it, though, to engaged in yes. government activity? Sure. Okay. Sure. Is that the same thing as kind of saying if you are on the field, largely because you are one of those people, mm -hmm. you are on duty when you are on the field. Those are not the same thing. Yeah, that's what I thought. And what Kennedy poses for us is the question, how do you know 
when somebody is on the field, or to use the orchestra example Chris gave a while ago, uh, is uh, is on the stage with the band or the orchestra, when it's a school official, um, when is that still considered private personal conduct? Because mm-hmm. the court says, like, when we're looking to see... And they said this in the First Amendment context, like when we're looking to see if something is government speech or pursuant to your official duties versus when it's purely private speech on a matter of public concern, like we're going to look at whether or not it's in furtherance of your responsibilities or if it's part of your job and things like that. And so like that's something that we've had to apply a lot to kind of figure out where those lines are in the First Amendment context, though, again, both Alito and Thomas kind of said like, hey, we didn't really decide what standard to apply given this this confluence of issues but you know we know no matter what standard we apply Mm -hmm. kennedy wins here to me like Mm -hmm. you know it doesn't come down to like a contract or what your duties are written on the contract because that is going to be a little bit too formalistic it's got to be a contextual analysis of what is you know part of your job right and here i think like it was in his contract that i'm responsible for supervising the kiddos after the football game and here he obviously kennedy the person was not engaged in that supervision and the dissent kind of really hits hard on that. But, you know, I'm curious, like, could you pass something that says if you're on the football field, you are engaged in government activity by virtue of your position that allows you to be on the football field? Um, I think that it is quite plausible that a school district can do that, but it is not clear. Yeah. And why am I giving you this wishy-washy answer? (laughs) Because you're a lawyer. Well, sure. (laughs) Yes. Um, What is what the court made clear was to the extent that anything was clear is something like this. If personal conduct is allowed, personal private conduct is allowed, religious personal private conduct can't be disallowed. So if the court, if the school district says from the moment your foot hits the turf to the moment you leave it, or from the moment the students show up in the locker room to the moment you turn them over to their parents, you're on duty and your job is to be supervising and to be whatever. You would think that if they've defined that that way and not allow anything else, that the rules should apply. Mm -hmm. Um, The question that the court gives us is formally, are coaches or teachers allowed to do other things, other personal things during that time? I don't know whether the Supreme Court or a lower court would say, well, you can't program every single minute of the day uh, and say that the person is on duty. You can't program every single minute from the locker room to the locker room and be on duty. I think it is plausible that that's permissible, but I also think that the safer thing is going to be to set out really clearly when and where and under what circumstances you can engage in personal conduct that's private and treat all personal conduct that way, mm-hmm. which, by the way, is what I think the school district did here. But yeah. never mind that. Uh, but you set that out as clearly as you can and you enforce it absolutely the same way for private non-religious conduct as for private religious conduct. And I think that's a really good takeaway is like, essentially, if, yeah. if you're going to allow secular conduct, then you have to allow religious conduct in that situation and make sure that you're structuring things so that you're kind of comfortable with that. It's almost like the Equal Access Act, right? Like it's the same kind of principle. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Like if you're going to allow this, you can, you got to allow the, the other. Right. And you can make a choice what you do or don't allow, yep. but you have to do it equally and fairly. Right. Exactly. I think that that's what the the rule should be and maybe still is. Right. Right. And that brings up the uh, my favorite little factual tidbit about this case that we didn't address when we talked about the facts is after the big hubbubaloo on the game in like mid-October when the coach prayed on the 50-yard line and the entire community kind of got onto the field with the reporters and everything. The very next day, the Santanic Temple was like, hey, cool. So we're allowing religious observation after games on the 50-yard line. We want in next. What about us? (laughs) And like... um, (laughs) It's so it's so fascinating because the <laughs> Satanic Temple is doing a lot of that right now. We're saying like, hey, if you want to open the door to religion, let us in. Yeah. If the field is 
a public forum where people can come on and speak as personal as individual citizens and have prayer rituals, then by gosh, we get to as well. They absolutely made that demand and they were not wrong to do that. What the coach was saying as I'm just myself here and they're just trying to prevent me from doing my own personal private thing. Why doesn't the satanic temple get to do it? Now, one of the facts that uh, is it was clear in the record but didn't show up in most of the coverage of the case was this. There were a, a few students who did not want to participate in the prayer and when all this hullabaloo was going on on the field, they tried very quietly to get up and walk out, uh, walk away from Kennedy's prayers. And when the Satanic Temple was, folks were there, they had to pass right by the Satanic Temple folks as well. Folks in the stands who saw them walking away looked and thought, these kids are Satanists. The Satanic Temple, by the way, is is something different. It's people who who are making a push for, for rationality and, and science mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to actual devil worshipers. But people in the field thought, these kids must be Satanists because they're walking away. The kids who tried, they lost friends. They had family right. members who stopped speaking to them. Yeah. Their senior year became just an awful, miserable thing. And mm. more than that, years later, some of those family relationships and friendships had never healed. Oh and they were goodness. still, people still thought, um, who are you to walk away from a prayer? You can't be one of us. Right, right. And that's what they had to deal with. That, I think, is what the law is supposed to protect against so that no kid, no student ever has to feel like I either go along or I'm an outsider who's told I don't belong. Yeah, right. Which goes to that like implicit coercive effect. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of yeah. what's going on because the social pressure and all of that, like yeah. the court is historically been sensitive to those. And, you know, here I think taking the opinion on its face, like doesn't eliminate those concerns. I think that's exactly right. Maybe, and look, who knows? Maybe that speaks to why so many of the other folks who were on the front lines of this resigned right. after, you know, it's hard to know, it's hard to get into their heads. Maybe it wasn't just, I don't want to be a part of the chaos. Maybe part of it was, I don't like what this is doing to our students, to, to certain groups of our students. Right. I think that's exactly right. Yeah. Again, I'm just like, I'm making an assumption. I don't know, mm -hmm. but I can only speak from personal experience. And if I was in a position like that, if I saw other students being ostracized or, or, or whatever like that, that would not sit right with me. No. You know? Yeah, look, I think, look, I've worked with a lot of teachers over the years, and I think most teachers take their role incredibly seriously and they realize mm -hmm. that what they say and what they do affects the students even if they don't necessarily mean to right and that that's a that's a kind of a sacred responsibility mm -hmm. for a teacher absolutely and so if if you take that seriously and you respect your students and families religious beliefs that suggests a kind of conduct that we just didn't have here yeah. 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 Honestly, Richard, thank you so much. I know you've got a, uh, you've got to jump on another call, but thank you. Yes. But Liz, Oh no, my, absolutely my pleasure. Great to be here and looking forward to, I am going to go back and I've been meaning to listen to the episodes up to this point. Cause I think you guys are doing some really interesting stuff. Oh, so thank, thank you, you, Richard. I appreciate it. Mm -hmm. All right. Wow. That, that was awesome. Uh, uh -huh. a lot of great legal conversation, but also some mm -hmm. really important takeaways, right, Chris? Right. Yeah. Some really good practical takeaways too. Cause I know we talked about how in flux this is, but like, you know, I think it's really important as we mentioned that the Supreme court really emphasizes that this is quiet, personal prayer delivered on this teacher's own time. Right. And so like, you know, I think that, yeah, like there's a lot of doctrinal signaling and there's a lot in flux right now, but with that and this idea of kind of like teachers as, as role models and really kind of taking that seriously, like that nothing really changed a lot. In, in, in that sense, right? Mm -hmm. Like teachers yeah. have always been able to engage in prayer if it doesn't interfere with their duties, if it's private, if it's person, you know, like it, Though, right. the, the things that the court sort of emphasized there have always been the case. Um, right. Well, maybe not always, but, you know, over the last 50, 
60 years. And that's essentially one of the things that the mm -hmm. lemon test that we talked about um, was hopefully in place to help us figure out, right? Right. And so now we'll have some new lines, but really the uh, practical implication or the practice, I don't think is yeah. going to change all that much. No, no. And I, I think, you know, like you guys uh, talked about, or like we all talked about, it's never been a clear set of do's and don'ts, right? Oh yeah. And Anytime somebody does something, anytime a teacher engages in some sort of, or an administrator, anybody who works in the school engages in some sort of religious, um, you know, act or whatever, we're asking the same questions and it's all very context specific. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I, I guess on one hand, one of the big takeaways is, you know, not much has changed. Uh, on the other hand, everything a lot has changed. changed. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like this historical and traditional sort of mm -hmm. test overriding the lemon test is that feels a lot harder to navigate. Right. Yeah. It's the next case that I think is going to be the hard one. Yeah. Right? That's like, going to be the hard mm -hmm. one. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. But, you know, maybe that's some good homework. Yeah. Go do some historical research and tell us what, uh, history and tradition has to say about religion in public schools. Please. <laughs> yeah, no, and we're definitely going to keep this conversation going and we'll have Richard back on to talk about uh, lots of other things because, you know, he's been very immersed in mm -hmm. a lot of these issues in the various positions that he has held. Um, you know, one of which we talked about was uh, in the Office of Civil Rights, and that's the division that deals with a lot of stuff with respect to education. But in the last 10, 15 years, especially a lot of the Title IX uh, interpretations and things like that came out of his office. And so, mm -hmm. um, you know, and we're going to be talking about a lot of those cases moving forward. So, you know, there's just so much education law, Chris. Yes, there is. And we're going to talk about all of it. Eventually. Yeah. yeah, eventually. Eventually. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and uh, hit the homework. We've, we've, we've been in this class long enough. <laughs> <laughs> this is a block day for sure. All right. Your homework. Uh, yeah. Go research the history and tradition of religion in public schools. Hit us up on social media at Chalk and Gavel. Uh, you can also go to our website, chalkandgavel.com. Uh, again, we'd love to hear your feedback. And, um, you know, if you like what you're here, let us know. Also, tell a friend, share this with whomever you think might find it interesting, your students, your, your teachers, your fellow classmates, um, whoever it might be. The more you can do to kind of get word of mouth and to spread it, the, the more people we can reach. Hopefully you had as much fun with this one as we did. Yeah, well, that does it for us on this week's episode of Chalk and Gavel. Join us again next time, and we will continue to talk about how the courtroom is connected to the classroom. See you then.